Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. My favorite birthday growing up had to be when I turned 10 years old. Because when I turned 10, we did something we had not done before for a party. We actually went to see a movie. Home Alone was coming out when I turned 10. Um, and we rented the whole, we, we had a whole row where we went and we watched the movie together. Um, who here has seen Home Alone? Okay, good. That's going to help. Because um, if you remember that movie, um, it's kind of funny now watching it as a parent because the beginning starts that this family leaves on vacation and forgets to take one of their kids with them. Um, now, from the kid's standpoint, he wakes up. This is Kevin, Macaulay Culkin. Um, he wakes up, and all of his family is gone. And there's some great moments of him figuring out what it is to be the man of the house. Um, but then things get a little bit darker. Um, there's some burglars who come, and he spends the whole rest of the movie uh, without the grown-ups around trying to survive uh, these burglars. And I bring that up because I actually think that many, um, many Christians, uh, particularly in North America, think that that story is basically how things are going to happen in the end times. That one moment, everyone, half the people are going to just disappear, and then all the burglars and bad guys will come out, and we have to survive it and uh, stave them off. Um, and actually, I'm going to talk a little bit about those kind of things today, because we have 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, this passage that kind of a more popular understanding of the rapture um, is drawn from. And if you're trying to figure out why in the world are our readings all focused on uh, the end of all things, um, it has to do with the way the liturgical calendar works. And so the liturgical calendar, we're actually almost the end of the church year. Um, that's Christ the King Sunday, and then we'll go into Advent as the start of the church year. And so at the very end of the church's year, you get all these readings about uh, the end times or what will happen at the end. Um, it kind of it, it hits a little funny mid-November, but uh, here we are. We're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, this morning. And I really just want to ask a few things. First, what did Paul have in mind when he wrote this passage? Um, how does that shape our understanding of the future? And how do we apply this passage today? Um, and partly, I think what I want to do is just kind of go through, here's what I think Paul is teaching uh, that might be a little bit different than sometimes what's taught in church. Um, but Paul's very clear here. He, don't, he does not want us to be uninformed. And so there's some informing um, I hope to do this morning as we think about uh, these things. Um, and so first, what did Paul have in mind in 1 Thessalonians 4? Again, people draw the idea of the rapture out of this passage. Uh, well, first of all, Paul is not uh, writing to speculate about the future. Uh, Paul is writing to inform and to encourage them in the midst of grief. And so if you look at what's happening in the Thessalonian church, they're experiencing profound grief because uh, apparently some members of the congregation have died. Um, they've gone to be with the Lord and he wants to console them and help them have really a context for understanding uh, their grief. And so he writes to them, 
um, that they're supposed to grieve, but not as those without hope. See, Paul knows grief is normal. It's natural. It's the right response um, to loss in our life. But he wants them to not grieve like everybody else, but to grieve with knowledge and with hope um, in what this means for those who know the Lord. Um, And I would think it is appropriate. This reading often comes uh, right after All Saints Sunday. All saints, we remember those whom we love but see no longer who are with the Lord. And then this passage comes saying, hey, here's how we grieve, and it's not as those without hope. Um, Now what's interesting is that this particular church is asking a question that maybe we don't ask. Uh, But it was something that really bothered them. And what they were trying to figure out is, hey, those who we love who have died, are they like disadvantaged um, if they're dead when the Lord returns? Is it like better to be alive when he returns? Um, And Paul wants to make sure they know, hey, no, they're not getting left out of anything. Um, All of what they need, they're going to find in the Lord. It's kind of a weird question, right? Um, Like, are you at a disadvantage if you've died um, versus being alive when the Lord returns? Um, And I mean, I guess the main disadvantage would be like they've experienced death, (laughs) Um, which is not good. But let's, let's look at this passage a little bit because what Paul is telling them is uh, he wants them to actually be encouraged. And he says, no, that the dead who are in Christ, um, including their loved ones and our loved ones who are with the Lord now, um, no, they're going to be resurrected first when he comes. Those who are left till the coming of the Lord uh, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul writes, the dead in Christ uh, will rise first. Um, he's not doing a full kind of theology of what happens when you die. He's just letting them know, hey, your loved ones, um, who you're grieving, um, they're going to be okay. They're not at a disadvantage when the Lord comes. And so I just think it's worth noting that this passage is primarily about that, to encourage them in the midst of their grief, not to kind of give them speculation. Um, it's more about the resurrection the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of their loved ones than it is about the rapture. Um, I always like to switch those R's. Like if you're thinking about the end times and your main word is rapture, let's just shift it to think resurrection um, and we'll probably get a lot closer to what Paul um, is teaching. And what's interesting is what Paul is doing is he's just using all of this rich imagery uh, to think about when the Lord will come again. And that's a foundational belief for the church. We actually, if you think about at the Eucharistic table, we say Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We're very certain that's going to happen. We're pretty uncertain of the details. (laughs) That's a good Anglican way to do it. (laughs) Um, We actually, sometimes when I get asked, hey, what is an Anglican view of eschatology or the last things, the end times? And I'll say, well, the Anglican view is the creedal view. We believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And we want to emphasize that um, more so than some of the speculation that might be um, a little more interesting or a little more popular. But um, here, Paul is joining all these pictures um, together to kind of, here's what it will look like when the Lord uh, comes again. So what's he write? Um, He says that those, that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another 
uh, with these words. Now, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot of rich Old Testament imagery when you talk about Jesus coming on the clouds. And the main thing we should hear from that is that Jesus is full of glory and honor and power. Whenever you hear about clouds in the Bible, it's usually emphasizing the divine identity of the one coming on the clouds or the one above the clouds. I would say this is not like a Mario reading. Like, you know, the game Mario where they're like jumping on the clouds? Like, that's, that's not what he's envisioning. Um, that we're going to like jump up a couple levels and then jump back down. And we go, no, think about the glory and majesty of this one who is coming and whom we will meet and who is coming uh, to reign. It's interesting. Um, there's a lot of rich imagery here. It's not a play-by-play. Um, and you get that even more if you look at the very next chapter, 1 Thessalonians 5. It's all about the day of the Lord. And Paul just starts stacking images, stacking metaphors. And I get that. Paul's a preacher. And sometimes you'll be trying to make a point. And you're like, okay, that's not working. Let's shift over here, make the point a different way, make the point a different way. Maybe this person will connect with this image. I think that's what Paul is doing here. He's building these images. Because if you actually look at 1 Thessalonians 5 um, and try to keep up with this, he says that this is going to happen um, like the thief that comes in the night, and then that makes the woman go into labor, so don't get drunk, stay awake, put on your armor. Bishop N.T. Wright, reflecting on that, says, don't try this at home. <laughs> uh, there's a lot going on. And he's just trying to illustrate the urgency and the surprise um, of what might happen. You heard that in the Amos reading. It's like if you have your hand on the wall and a snake gets you. you weren't, it just gets out and it gets you. He said, that's what these things are going to be like. Um, and, and that's, you know, he'll talk about it in other ways. Paul will say in Colossians 3 or Philippians 3, um, he doesn't use coming on the clouds language. He uses appears language. So the one who has disappeared will reappear in our midst and we will see him and behold um, his glory. Um, and, and if you think about the picture that, that Paul has in mind, he, he's not thinking so much of heaven like up there. Um, he's thinking about heaven, that you have the heavens and the earth. And the heaven is what we don't see. This is the unseen. This is where God dwells. And the entire Bible imagines a time when heaven and earth are remade and made one. They're made new. They're renewed together in what we would call the new heavens and the new earth. Um, that is biblical last things. Biblical end times are the new heavens and the new earth. The resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And it's focused on Jesus appearing there <coughs> along with those who belong to him. And so Paul uses this kind of technical idea um, of what he calls the, the parousia, um, which is often known as rapture, uh, and more popularly. But let me just walk through what is happening there, because this word only occurs, I think, two or three times in the whole Bible. Um, I didn't know that. I grew up, and like every youth group event was either focused on true love waiting, um, on our patriotic heritage, or on the rapture and the end times. Like those were the big three that we focused on. And so um, I, I was unaware that this is a fairly minor point in the whole of Scripture and a fairly debatable point in all of Scripture that's been discovered, you know, kind of in the 1800s. That's usually you don't want to get your theology from the 1800s. But um, what they're talking about this term, it's called parousia is the Greek word for it. 
And this is a very common thing in uh, the Greco-Roman world. It's not that common in the Bible. It's common in the Greco-Roman world. And what would happen is if the emperor was coming to one of his towns, then they would ring out and say, it's time for the parousia. And that's essentially a parade. And so everyone in the town would run out, and then they would accompany the emperor back in. Um, This idea of we'll be caught up in the clouds and then return, that's what that is. It's a parade, essentially. Um, You go out, you meet the ruler, you come back in uh, with the ruler. Um, Not that you go out and you disappear and you're gone, (laughs) which is what's more popularly taught in this. Um, And I, I used to, a few years ago, we taught on this, and I was like, man, I don't even know if folks are aware of parades or like, you know, this isn't something we do all the time. But then now we do this like every year in January. Here in this town, we win national titles and we have parades. <laughs> you totally get it. It's right in line. That's what's happening. You come in with the victors. Um, and that's really what Paul is emphasizing. That the one who was crucified, <laughs> who looks like he was defeated, no, he was raised um, and he will return in victory and in great power, and we will all see him together. That's the idea here. This is not really a prophetic uh, play-by-play. It's insisting that at some point, and we believe that Jesus will come again, um, that when he comes, he will be the center and focus of what God is doing at that time. We will see him. He will come in as the conquering hero, and we will get to share in that victory um, And that's maybe like, when we have this parade year by year in Athens because a football team has won a title, how much work did we do for that victory? Zero. But we share in the celebration, right? There's a similar thing at work. Like all of the work is done by Jesus and we get to share in his victory. We get to celebrate with him and be beneficiaries of the work that he has done. And so how do we apply this? Well, I first hope that um, we would eagerly await the coming of Jesus. Um, Not in a weird way, not in a, you know, look for it on every page of the newspaper, but that we would wait for uh, the Lord. Um, That we would long to encounter Jesus in a deeper, more personal way than we know him right now. I mean, right now, we, we have faith in the Lord, we love the Lord, we know the Lord, but it's it's not visible, is it? There's almost a, there's a, not a gap, it's not less than. I mean, we know the Lord, and we experience his presence as we read the scripture, take the sacrament, pray. We can, we can experience the Lord's presence in that way. But we actually believe that we will experience his presence more fully. That we will see the Lord face to face. That we will embrace the one who has I'm stretched out his arms upon the cross and then embraced us. When I think about how we should think about the end times or, you know, eschatology or whatever you want to call it, um, instead of speculation about the play-by-play, could we just long for the more personal presence of the Lord? That we're going to know him in a deeper way. We're going to see him uh, more truly. We're going to see his beauty and glory and goodness. Um, And the other thing, and this, I hope this doesn't feel kind of insensitive, but statistically speaking, um, most Christians so far have been much more likely to go to him than for the Lord to return to us. Like we're going to see the Lord face to face, either because we go to him 
um, in death or because he returns. I've often thought, man, the, the emphasis there in the church probably should be more on um, how do we go to him versus the play-by-play of when he might um, come to us. And so um, it's going to be incredible when we finally encounter the Lord um, and see him face-to-face and behold him um, as he is. And you might wonder, when is that going to happen? Well, I would tell you, if somebody lets you know when that is going to happen, run the other way. Because <laughs> Jesus said he didn't know when it was going to happen, right? Um, in the history of the church, there's been leaders who have said, this is when it's going to happen. That doesn't go well <laughs> once the, the time passes. Um, I, I have this phrase, and it's actually from Lord of the Rings, um, there's a moment where they're talking about timing and Gandalf uh, arrives and they say, you're late. He says, no, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Um, and if you'll allow me a little leeway connecting that to Jesus, if you ask when he's going to come, I'll say, I don't know. Um, but he's not going to come too late and it won't be too early. It's going to be precisely when he's supposed to according to God's perfect timing. And God's timing is rarely like our timing. Like I I was thinking through in the New Testament, there's beautiful phrases about the timing of the Lord. Romans uh, chapter 5 says, While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's how God's timing works. Is when we were not thinking of the Lord, not loving him, not pursuing him, he loved us. And gave himself for you and for me. That's how the Lord's timing works. Galatians 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. There's a perfect timing to God's timetable. And so if you ask me, when is this going to happen? I'll say when it's supposed to. (laughs) When God has determined uh, that it should. Um, And it probably will surprise us. That's the tone of all those readings we had. This is going to surprise you. Um, which is different than I was raised to go, hey, always kind of piece it together so we can kind of read between the lines to know when this will happen. And what I see in the New Testament is Jesus says, I don't know when this is going to happen. And it says, this is going to surprise you. Um, That's the tone we get, but it's a great thing that will finally happen um, and will one day happen. Um, I did come across, by the way, this is... (laughs) This has gotten so popular, this idea of the rapture and setting dates and the end times. Um, did you know that, uh, <laughs> that there's a group of, of wonderful atheists who have decided to profit off of this notion? You can essentially buy rapture insurance for your pets. And if you send them a donation, an amount, and you send them your address, then what they've agreed to do is that when you are raptured, they will come into your home and feed your pets. (laughs) Um, And I only bring that up to just go like, y'all, let's not be goofy on this stuff. It doesn't bring honor to the Lord in that way. Um, I don't think we need to speculate. Um, And in fact, what we, uh, that can create false expectations and fear. Um, Instead, I would say, instead of trying to figure out when Christ will return, what the New Testament usually says is to be ready. 
um, to stay ready. That's what those readings about the wise virgins and the foolish virgins, uh, be ready, stay ready. Um, do the things that he's clearly told us to do so that we're found working uh, when the Lord comes. Um, it's interesting. If you do watch any college football, I know we have some non-college football fans here. That's okay. Um, Jesus loves you too. Um, but I would say almost every Saturday, there's some player that will get hurt and another guy will come in and he'll like, you know, do fantastically. They'll interview him. How, how are you ready when your number was called? And he'll say something like, well, I didn't have to get ready because I stay ready. Um, it's a cliche, but it's essentially what the New Testament says. Stay ready. Um, always be ready so that when the Lord comes, he will find you working. Um, and the Lord's really clear. He gives us the great commission and the great commandment. The great commission, go and make disciples um, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey what I have taught you. Um, that's what we're supposed to be engaged in. That's the work that God has given us to do. And then he summarized kind of our posture, our attitude in the great commandment. What is the greatest of the commands? It is love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, if we are, by God's grace and through the Holy Spirit working in us, attempting to follow those two commands, then when the Lord comes, he'll find us working. Um, and that's what we should be pursuing, is how do we pursue the Great Commission and the Great Commandment? Um, and the way I've often thought about this is, uh, I think I was taught early on that, that theology, you had right theology and wrong theology. And so you would ask, hey, is this, is this true or is it untrue? And as I've kind of grown and matured, I've started to realize, man, you can actually have something that's right but you can actually get it out of proportion. You, you can get the emphasis on it wrong. And so I've thought about, you know, folks I know who they get really into kind of the end times things or things like that. Um, on the one hand, I think they're probably misreading some of the scriptures. But on the other hand, I'm like, man, this is an overemphasis. Um, if you compare it to how often these themes appear uh, in the scripture. And so if, I think if you actually have the wrong emphasis, you, you just get out of theological alignment. It's like driving a car out of alignment. Um, I think instead to be true is, hey, what has the Lord clearly told us and how do we stay focused and stay ready um, on those things? So uh, if you are at all intrigued uh, by these topics, I have one book recommendation. Um, it's called Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. This won't shock you if you've been here for a while. Um, but his book, Surprised by Hope, um, really looks at some of our popular understandings of these doctrines. Um, what does the church always taught? What does the scripture say? And uh, how can we be informed and comforted by the hope that God has for us? I would uh, commend that to you. Um, I would also say that if you have gotten really interested in like, quasi-biblical speculation. Um, by the way, anytime there's a skirmish in Israel or the Middle East, you just see this kind of explode where there's all kinds of speculation everywhere. Um, you know, I would say like, pun intended, you can leave those behind. <laughs> okay. Um, and attend to the Lord. Attend to what's clear here. Attend to the Great Commission and uh, the Great Commandment. And again, if you just need a switch 
Um, every time you go, man, I need to go study the rapture, go, let me go focus on the resurrection. Let me focus on the resurrection of Jesus. Let me think about the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, and you'll get things back in alignment. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.